Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA, and I am honored to be speaking with wonderful music teachers from around Georgia on such a regular basis. One of the blessings of this venture is I've made many new friends, but today, one of the happiest discoveries of being vice president of membership is that I've managed to reconnect with an old friend. Today, I'm joined by my dear friend, Yuni Choi. I won't blabber on more because I want her to tell her story. So without further delay, hi, Yuni. Hi, baby. It's good to be here. Let's get started with the background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'm a teacher and a performer based in Decatur, and it has been quite the journey to get here. So, uh, so much so that my college professor called me the UN ambassador. (laughs) So here it goes. I began my studies in Korea, and then I moved to Uzbekistan, which used to be um, part of Soviet Union. So there I studied. Can I ask how old were you when you started your studies in Korea? And yeah, just do your ages. I was four when I began playing Korea. And it was pretty, you know, that standard generic go to piano studio after school type of thing. (laughs) And then I moved to Uzbekistan when I was seven. There I studied in a music academy where they had your academic courses along with music courses. And there I studied with the most intense and scariest Russian teachers. (laughs) And then I moved to the U.S. as a teenager to study piano and took lessons with a professor at the Arizona State University, which is how I met you. And from there, I moved on to get my bachelor's degree at University of Michigan, master's degree at Northwestern University, and a doctorate degree from University of Georgia, um, which I completed about two years ago. And I never thought I would end up in Georgia, (laughs) but decided to finally settle down in Decatur and work as a private teacher which has been great since I'm a new mom and have been fortunate to arrange my teaching schedule around caring for my daughter. Can I make you back up a little bit since you you have such an international experience in your education, Korea, Mm -hmm. Uzbekistan and America. Can you summarize a little bit of the maybe cultural and pedagogical differences just from your personal experience? Yeah. I think common thing that Korea and Uzbekistan probably shares is it's very heavily focused on building technique. I think they really train to create performers. The repertory that you go through is pretty regimented. So that I feel like I got a really good technical basis in both those countries, especially from my studies in Uzbekistan. Is there a sense that because you use the word regimented, do Mm -hmm. most of the kids that that go through that curriculum end up using the exact same curriculum, studying the same set of pieces? Or is there diversity and choice within that curriculum? I think for the most part, it's very similar, but I think each teacher had a specialty 
So I actually studied with three different teachers when I was in Uzbekistan and able, was able to get exposed to all these different repertoires that they taught. Were, were they, I don't know, I mean, pardon my ignorance, but were they more like intense on Russian repertoire or were you exposed to like French and I don't know, Spanish music? Um, it was actually a lot of the romantic repertoire. I probably started working on Russian composers in the U.S. <laughs> I think it's probably because those pieces of Chopin and Liszt are a little bit easier, musically speaking, to work as a youngster. <laughs> and I think the technical difficulties are a little bit more spaced out. Mm. So that's mostly what I worked on the Romantic period. Okay, what what words would you use to summarize American education based on your experience here? It's definitely more personalized. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher who just tried to expose me to all these different styles. And like I didn't even... um, study French music until I was 15, 16, which was a really different experience for me. And that's kind of what I am drawn to now, just because of the the different tones and colors you get to create. So yeah, personalized, more customized teaching, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm How did you end up in Georgia? I mean, obviously you came and you studied at University of Georgia, but why did you pick that school? And how did you (laughs) ultimately decide to stay here and settle here? Mm -hmm. Good question. I went through two rounds of auditions for the doctor program. And by the end of the second round, I was a little bit discouraged about having to take out more loans to (laughs) do another program. So University of Georgia had really great teachers and it seems like good music academic program. And Mm. they also provided stipend for all doctorate students. So that's where I ended up. Yeah, so this is an interesting topic that I haven't broached with anyone, and hopefully I'm not stepping out of bounds. Let me know if you don't want to answer this, but uh, the balance between picking a dream school versus and taking out loans mm-hmm. versus picking a school that is much more affordable, like what were your calculations there? Um, and how has that worked out practically for you in terms of, you know, going to a more affordable school. I I don't know if you still have student loans from previous education. Oh yeah, I do. And that's, that's why, that's why it was so important to me to have a good financial sense of program there. I think I did get like a lot of great experiences at University of Michigan and Northwestern, but I also I think being in a smaller school just was a really positive experience for me. I got to perform a ton. I almost got burnt out from performing. And there were a lot more interactions between students and professors, which I really appreciated. I think I got a better education because of it. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So you touched on this very, very briefly, but I do want to dive into it. You talked about having a young child at home. And so juggling family life and professional life, what lessons have you learned and what advice can you give to others? <laughs> well, I'm still working on it. <laughs> so, but I can show you what I've kind of realized. It's been really fun to be a mom. It's to quote my husband, it's been harder than I thought it would be, but also more fun than I thought it would be. And figuring out how to fit in teaching while my daughter's schedule is still changing has been pretty challenging. Ren, I think her sleeping schedule is stable, like teething or developmental sleep regression starts, and we're back to square one. So because of the pandemic, my husband and I have held off of getting a nanny or sending our baby to a daycare. So we've been kind of tag teaming baby care. And even though it's been a whirlwind, I feel lucky to still be able to teach. I have local students who live pretty close by and whose parents are very understanding about the challenges of being a new mom. And I also have some students from a studio in Roswell that I teach online which has worked out well for us. The pandemic, even though it's been, oh, <laughs> you know, a difficult experience, it has made online lessons an option in teaching. And while it is certainly not for everyone, some of my students I was teaching previously wanted to stay with me to take virtual lessons. And it has worked out so far by supplementing their lessons with lots of projects like recording a YouTube tutorial of their song or creating a performance recording. So do you schedule your teaching around your baby's nap time? How does that work? Yep. I generally try not to teach in the morning, even though with summer schedule, that's parents ask for that. So in the morning, early afternoon, I got the baby. And then when my husband gets off work, that's when I start teaching, which I mean, that's after school. So it it has worked out so far. Yeah. What's your teaching load like right now? And are you maxed out or do you still have room? Well, that's (laughs) still have room. It's (laughs) interesting. (laughs) My load is pretty light right now and intentionally so. I am waiting to send Rowan to preschool mm-hmm. until I can take more students. So I think right now I've got about 12 students, not that many. That's quite a lot, especially <laughs> with a baby at home. So <laughs> it feels like a lot. <laughs> Let's talk a little more about your education and your upbringing. Do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music? Yeah. When I was studying in Uzbekistan, I mentioned that we were studying a lot of romantic period. There was one performance that really made me fall in love with performing. And I was always a shy kid, but music allowed me to come out of my shell and transform into these different characters. So there was one teacher I took lessons from and her specialty was teaching list. And one of the first list pieces I played was Fantasia on Hungarian folk tunes for piano and orchestra. It's not really a well-known piece, but it's a quirky little arrangement of the Hungarian Rhapsody number 14. And at that time, I've never played anything like it. This piece had this like really dark, brassy, 
audacious sound and it being in classic list fashion it had like a lot of different techniques that I had to master to successfully perform it and when I finally learned it it just made me feel so powerful and bold and ever since then I've been kind of chasing that feeling in a performance. Do you think about the impact of that piece on you as you pick pieces for your students? Does it have an mm. influence your teaching? When I see students with that kind of drive and drive towards like playing that really intense, really heavily virtuosic songs, then yeah, I definitely try to veer them towards that style. And I've got a couple of students who've who've actually requested Mephisto Waltz <laughs> and crazy things like that. So it's been fun teaching that repertoire. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, as a teacher, I think a lot of us think about like trying to balance a student's interest versus their weakness or things that they're, they think they don't like. And mm -hmm. so it sounds like you would encourage a student to just go in the direction that they they're interested in. And I mean, do you think about fostering? Like if a student comes to you and says, I do not like Bach, do you make them play Bach? I try to go around. <laughs> so I think most of the time, they don't think they like certain type of music because they haven't been exposed to what that music could sound like. So when it comes to their choices, I do give them a lot of freedom to choose their own things. But I also try to do these like little listening sections of um, learning about new composers and what their sound was like and what the story was behind it. And that seems to really help mm -hmm. to give them a vision. Great. What aspects of your life and career as a musician have surprised you? How does it measure up to the life you envisioned for yourself as a young musician? One of the humbling realizations <laughs> I've come to in my career as a musician is that not everyone becomes a concert pianist. <laughs> I think that's kind of a common realization people come to. I grew up in a pretty competitive culture. So in my limited view, I used to think that being a Martha Argridge or Long Long was the only way to be a musician. So a lot of my adolescent years were spent focusing on the building that career, like competing, going to music camps, getting into reputable music schools and so on. And I think the biggest change that happened since then is that my goal as a musician became more about outreach. What I found along my journey as a musician is how special it is to have the opportunity to share music. And it's that personal connection that gave meaning to my career. There was one time I got invited to perform at a rehab center along with other musicians. And when I got there, the place was in total chaos. There were a lot of people in distress and it must have been like a mandatory event because a lot of people did not want to be there. So there are a lot of moaning and grumbling from the audience. And by the time it was my turn to play, the hall was just so noisy that I didn't think anyone could hear the music. So I was just scared senseless. And so I just sat down and with 
all earnesty, started playing Brahms and Tomezzo in A major, the opus 118, number two. And as I played, I could hear the hall quieting down little by little, and it was silent by the end of the piece. And when I got back to my seat, one lady who was particularly distressed at the beginning of the event turned to me and said, um, you play like an angel, and then left the hall just all relaxed and content. And at that time, this felt like such an awkward, unsettling event, but it really made me think hard about the effect of music it can have on people and what a privilege it is to give someone that moment of catharsis. Mm. This idea of sharing music is also what drew me to teaching. I remember one summer I had just the best time discovering all kinds of new music after an incredible summer at the Interlochen Arts Camp. And because I got to connect with others who were just as excited about music, I wanted to recreate that for my students and also equip them with knowledge and skills to gift others with music. Mm. Wow, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your heart uh, for ministering to others through music. Perhaps we've already started touching on this, but describe your journey as a teacher. How have you changed? Who or what have been your key influences? There's one quote that resonated with me and continues to kind of shape my teaching philosophy. Frances Clark said, the study of teaching is always a study of learning process. And the learning process is always a study of beginning. How children learn, what children can learn, under what conditions they learn best, and what they're ready to learn at different stages of development. So similar to my own musical career, I initially focused a lot on building skills. So technique, note reading, and etc. My teaching method was pretty rigid because I only used what worked for me, which shows my inexperience. And the level of accuracy I required of my students, even beginners, <laughs> just worked for some students, but also didn't work for many. So I took a lot of years to figure out that I needed to focus on getting to know my students better not just their learning styles, but things that interest them and inspires them so that we can set our goals based on them. So how do you know, how do you know what standard to hold students? Because, you know, it is good to have a high standard Mm -hmm. and to, uh, to push students to achieve beyond even what they think they are capable of, but we never want to verge on the, into the realm of unreasonable. How do you establish appropriate goals, I guess, is the question. Mm -hmm. Usually having recital usually that helps because when we're just doing our lessons we would have just for fun pieces and then pieces to perform and these just for fun pieces they have a lot of freedom to just choose what they want to play and our challenge performance pieces are the ones that I really want them to learn to grow and usually works well for us and it's it's really fun to see them 
after a performance because they feel good about themselves, you know, about playing a harder piece and having it done well most of the time. <laughs> but um, that's how I usually try to arrange my teaching. Yeah, I remember, I mean, I, I have a similar experience in terms of, you know, my expectations for my students as a young teacher versus now. And I remember my pivot point was I was um, doing observations, teaching observations for a pedagogy class. And I observed, and I'm going to give her name just so that I can give her credit, Justine Sassenfar. She's now based in Tallahassee, but formerly taught at Wichita State University. I remember watching her teach, and she was a doctoral student at Florida State at that time. And she was teaching a kid that uh, the the child played a wrong note in a piece. And she says, you know, this isn't the note that's written, but I really like the note that you played. Let's use that note instead. <laughs> yes. And I remember sitting in that lesson, just like having my mind blown and just thinking about how graciously and joyfully she handled that situation, letting the student know what has happened, what, what his... Um, mistake so-called is but then embracing that mistake and then and then making the student feel like oh look I contributed something even if it was like unintentional and I was like wow I I want to be that good on the spot about embracing a a child's mistakes and creativity you know exactly yeah what a great way to foster creativity and I think this kind of puts things into perspective too not every student has the same goal, right? Some students do want to pursue a career in music and then you can push them a lot more and try to expose them to different style of music. But there are also a whole lot of students who are just doing it for fun and just for well-rounded education, right? And I think knowing that right from the start really helps in managing pieces and to teaching styles and so on. Yeah. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? I first joined the collegiate chapter of GMTA as a graduate student at UGA. And with the UGA pedagogy department, we've presented at GMTA and MTNA conferences, and it was just a great time to do all those different activities and to meet teachers and to network. And this past year, I had a chance to experience what it is like to be in a local MTA. So for me, that's Decatur MTA. And that helped me to realize how vital this community is for teachers. I moved to Decatur area just before the pandemic. (laughs) So right as I moved, I was going into this isolated transition into teaching online lessons. And I just missed interacting with other musicians and teachers. So I joined DMTA about a year ago. And even though I haven't been able to be involved in very many activities and meetings um, because of my baby daughter, 
It has been special to see how the members of DMTA support each other. I've seen them hold fundraisers for fellow teachers and they've referred new students to me so that I could start teaching more locally. We've just been so great and I really hope to get involved soon. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you more at GMTA events and I'm so glad that we have reconnected through GMTA. So I'm grateful yeah. to the organization for that. <laughs> this is our very last question. Do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? Yes. My other passion is for visual arts and design. You'd find me painting if I wasn't a musician. I also think the convergence of music and visual arts is so fascinating. In music teaching, it's very common to describe certain tones and sound with visual cues like color or texture, like using color yellow for warm, happy sounds or words like jagged to describe certain type of like oscillating passage. Mm -hmm. My doctoral dissertation was kind of on the subject. I analyzed some of Scraven's piano works using color metaphors that he used in his orchestral works. I've also had a pleasure to participate in a multimedia project in which we paired colorful visuals to music to explain the psychological effects of color. Mm -hmm. And there are some really cool modern media artists who are experimenting with interdisciplinary art on a much bigger scale. There's one artist um, whose name is Rafik Anadol, and he uses AI sculpture that uses images of architecture, nature, and paintings and creates this like immersive experience. He's collaborated with Philadelphia Orchestra to create multimedia performance of the Beethoven Misa Solemnis. I think he took paintings and architecture of Renaissance period and displayed it as the musicians were playing. And I think he's done displays on the um, Walt Disney concert hall, you know, the wavy concert hall. And as the LA Philharmonic was playing in the background. So a lot of cool stuff. And I think with this new technological advancement of virtual reality and AI, there will be a lot more intimate ways to experience music. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. So yeah. that's my other passion. <laughs> can, I, can I ask about your paintings? How, what words would you use to describe your style or your approach to painting? Oh man. I have never gotten a formal formal education in art, so I lack words when it comes to describing my uh, style. But I do like, instead of hyper-reality, I do like more impressionistic interpretation of things. So, and I just like to doodle, sketch, and Paint if I have time. I've also done like watercolor paintings for wedding invitations, which was a fun project. So yeah, I dabble. <laughs> That's great. I had no idea that you had that interest. Um, I'm not. I'm not completely surprised. I mean, you've always seemed like someone who's very aesthetically, visually aesthetically in tune. Just honestly, from the outfits that you wear. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and the things I've seen you in, but um, yeah, I had no idea. So that's, yeah. that's interesting for me to find out. Well, Uni, it has been really wonderful reconnecting with you and to hear more about your story and uh, details that I didn't know about. Um, it's always a pleasure to see you in any setting, and it's certainly an honor to speak with you for this podcast. I am sure our listeners will learn wonderful nuggets about teaching and music just from listening to you. I know I have. So with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students.